0: Similar to a well-tuned automobile, a guitar requires the same level of attention to perform at its very best. No matter how expensive your guitar may be, we will treat you and your instrument with the utmost respect. Call 920-723-1733 or visit jeffsguitar.com. Jeff's Guitar Clinic in Fort Atkinson, we love guitars. The attorneys at Jingris, Thompson & Wachs have had the honor of receiving numerous awards for their work both in and outside the courtroom. But just as important as receiving accolades for being skilled attorneys, it's equally important to give back to the community in which they live and work. If you want a personal attorney that can help you in so many different areas, they've got them. They're in Eau Claire, Madison, Milwaukee, and Waukesha. They're easy to reach. GTWlawyers.com. Welcome to another podcast at sliceoffice.com, brought to you by our friends at the Madison Teamsters, Local 695, and, of course, the Operating Engineers, Local 139. John Harrison Nichols from The Nation and the Capital Times joins us this morning as we record. Uh, John, I, uh, I know you wrote about this, but it's worthy of being played again and again and again and again. <laughs>
1: Mr. Johnson, you helped lead the efforts to overturn the twenty twenty election results. for you. Oh, God. you <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh,
2: shut up! Next question.
3: Twenty so, okay. twenty four.
0: Saying shut <laughs> up. That reminds <sighs> me of a certain Madison talk show host at a at a rally. Uh, you may remember Sarah Palin came to town that day. Andrew Breitbart. Remember that moment? Shut up! In 2011, it was a very
3: yeah. They they seemed a little put upon.
0: I've never um, seen you happier than that moment.
3: It was well. It was. <laughs> I remember the. If you'll recall, I think we we uh, we kind of like tried to figure out how big their crowd was by actually walking off the the small space they were in, and it was you know it was actually an almost measurable proportion of what they claimed it was. Um, but I must say that event the other day in Washington where they introduced the new speaker of the house or the incoming soon to be incoming Speaker of the House, uh Congresswoman Fox from I think
0: North Carolina. Yes, Virginia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's nice. Virginia she? from North Carolina. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Uh, she she, nice? she's a nice lady. She's been you know, she was Trumpy yeah. before Trump. Yeah, it's been said that
3: that she's the one person in the house who scares Jim Jordan. <laughs>
0: Oh, my God. Well, we had Matt Gates outing a Republican congressman from Missouri yesterday. That was a big kerfuffle going on. That c- created a bit of a storm. Uh, all right, so... The,
3: the things are, they're, they're really getting along
0: well. Oh, they really are doing a great job. Okay, so that moment, the cognitive yeah. dissonance between people in Georgia pleading guilty to election denialism and their involvement right. with overturning elections. At the same time, the Republican House picks a speaker who, by Steve Bannon's account, was the architect of the efforts to overturn the 2020 election.
3: Well, you don't even have to turn to Steve
0: Bannon, you know, although, you know, I, I trust oh, him. Oh, well, come on. He's got some street cred on that one, huh? Well, he does. Look, I'm telling you,
3: I trust him in this regard. There's no doubt. I, if he says somebody was involved, I'm sure they were. Um, but, you know, it's not some sort of secret or conspiracy. The new Speaker of the House actually sent out a memo um, in December, not in, not in January of, of 2021, but December of 2020, where he uh, mentioned that President Trump had contacted him and basically, you know, dubbed him as the point man for their efforts to overturn the election using uh, Ken Paxton from Texas's absurd lawsuit. But um, it was very interesting because the the new speaker, um, not only did he uh, demand that other members of the House sign on to an amicus brief seeking to get the Supreme Court to overturn the results from Wisconsin and other states, um, he included an interesting thing in his memo. If you read it all, and I, I, I read it over as I was writing about this, he said, "You know, President Trump contacted me about this, and it, he's watching very closely. And he's very inter- he'll be very interested in who signs on, right, to the fellow members of the House. Isn't this sound
0: a little mob like? You know I mean? Oh, he's just you know? practicing. He's just practicing his leadership role, John. Just practicing. <laughs> it, it very interesting to
3: say." At a point when, you know, people, you know, a lot of these Republicans are thinking, you know, can I break with Trump? He lost the election, stuff like that. You know, here's this, this guy saying, you know, you might might want to think about uh, not signing this, because if you don't, somebody's going to notice.
0: And now we have Mitt Romney saying, Senator Mitt Romney, saying that uh, many Republicans didn't vote for impeachment because they were concerned for the physical safety of their families. Now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can say a lot of things about Mitt Romney but he did, he is not somebody to go out there on a limb and say reckless stuff. He's a pretty cautious <laughs> fellow by by nature.
3: Well and also by the way <laughs> Romney says this in the context of Jim Jordan's run for speaker of the house in which members of the house were saying, "Yes, I felt concerned for the safety of my family." Right. If I didn't go for Jordan, there were these threat phone threats and people were actually contacting the authorities. And so within the Republican caucus, right, you have this kind of very dark, very uh, ominous kind of threatening sensibility that has developed. And um, there was concern about nominating Jim Jordan for that reason, right, because the idea was, well, Jordan seems a little over to- over the top, and some of his supporters at least seem to be threatening, et cetera, et cetera. And so they got... They, push him aside. They say, "Well, Jim Jordan, he's can't have him, right? You Can't have him. So they go with a guy no one has heard of, right? guy who's never been in a serious leadership position, never chaired a key committee. I mean, he, he really is, you know, kind of a non-entity. Except he's the one guy who did more than Jim Jordan to try to overturn
0: the election. So, have you noticed something about Mike Johnson? Have you heard him speak? Yeah,
3: well, I, I listened to his uh, yeah. introduction. Okay.
0: Does he sound like he's from Louisiana to you?
3: No, does not. <laughs> but I think it's you know he's from up there in Shreveport, right? You know. Yeah, so but
0: there's usually Dubai, st- there's still a little there there's still a little uh, you know a little cadence usually with the Louisiana accent. It. I haven't looked to see where he went to college, but boy, he he kinda he kinda he kinda, he kinda talks like an Ivy Leaguer.
3: Now he did go in I think he went in Louisiana, but um no no I look I, this is the interesting thing about him. I agree with you. I think his accent doesn't sound Louisiana. Sure so he doesn't sound like Edwin Edward Edwards, right? I mean that's not Or not John Bell or
0: John Bell Edwards or you know.
3: Or any of that yeah. signal. But um, I think you know. I think he's legitimately rooted in the state. I just think he's one of those people who you know has worked very hard to sound like a, a D.C.er, right? You know, to kind of make himself. I, I shouldn't say that. Maybe he always sounded this way. Maybe that's it. Probably came up. But.
0: Oh, he comes right out of central casting, right? I mean, he, yeah, 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 right. Well, here he is right. on uh, with Sean Hannity last
2: night. The issue um, already. The the press the left have come at you and come at you hard. Um, specifically, I'll give you two big issues. One on the issue, you, you once worked for the Alliance Defense Fund, a Christian advocacy group, yep. and comments you had made both in writing and advocacy for this group about homosexuality, calling it sinful, destructive, um, and, and not supporting gay marriage um... quote no clear right to sodomy in the constitution you have been getting hammered on this and i want to ask you about it i want to know exactly you know where you stand some of these comments were fifteen years ago i don't even remember some of them i, I was a litigator that was called upon to defend the state marriage amendments if you remember back in the early two thousands i think it was over thirty five states somewhere in that number that the, the people went to the ballot in their respective states and they amended their state constitutions to say marriage is one man one woman well i was a religious liberty defense lawyer and i was called to go in and defend those cases in the courts let me let me state this very clearly and, and there's been questions about this let me say where i am Anybody that knows me will tell you this is true. I am a rule of law guy. I made a a career defending the rule of law. I respect the rule of law. When the Supreme Court issued the Obergefell opinion, that became the law of the land, okay? I respect the rule of law, but I also genuinely love all people, regardless of their lifestyle choices. This is not about the people themselves. I I am a Bible-believing Christian. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, Go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's that's my worldview. That's what I believe, and so That's I make your no personal apology. worldview. It's my personal worldview. But here's the thing: everybody comes to the House of Representatives with deep personal convictions. But all of our personal convictions are not going to become law. That's this is a, a a big body of people. There's 435 members in the House. You have to argue and find consensus and all of that. So I have no agenda other than what's best for the American people.
0: I have no agenda, uh, John. If he's a rule of law guy, even after the United States Supreme Court threw out the lawsuit that he was involved with helping Ken Paxton, the corrupt attorney general from Texas, even after they threw it out, he still sought to overturn the 2020 election. Does that sound like the rule of law? Well, it's, I think it's the rule
3: of law that he likes. Um, look, here, here's the interesting thing. Um, this guy's a smart guy, right? Would you agree to that? Yeah, I agree. He's smart, man. devious, but smart. Well, I'm kind of getting there. Um, he's he's very very smart. He he seems to have a you know very clear memory of a lot of stuff, very clear understanding of stuff. And the, then suddenly he's like, I don't even remember a lot of what I wrote, right? In the, in an interview with Hannity, and I'm thinking to myself. I don't know, man. This is kind of a major fight. You were sort of a point man on supporting discrimination against a substantial portion of Americans, a substantial number of Americans. You were a strong advocate for that. Now, when you've achieved a position of great power, suddenly you are saying, oh, yeah, you know, I don't even remember. You know, I, just, I was just a lawyer. I just you know, picked up some cases. I, I may, have, may have been involved in something like that, but you know, now I'm good with what we've got. Well, well, all I will tell you is this. That line was the line that you heard from a lot of people about abortion rights when Roe was still accepted by the court. And they said, it's established law. That's what people who wanted to be justice on the court. Stare decisis. Exactly. It's established law. Don't even, you don't even need to bring it up with me. I'm, it's, that's, that's water under the bridge. That's the path. Except when the Supreme Court finally has enough justices on it who want to overturn it, who lied to the Senate committee when they were coming up, didn't accept it as established law, and in fact overturned it. And so I look at Johnson's comments in that context, quote-unquote, I'm a rule-of-law guy, I think, until the laws I don't like get overturned. And that's where to put them into perspective. And if you have any doubt about that, I mean, just, Look at his agenda since he's been in Congress. I mean, look at what he's said and done on committees. this guy this guy is not somebody who says, well, some things are set in stone, we're moving forward as society. He has very much been active in trying to overturn, especially on you know social issues, in overturning established law and taking us back to we were to where we were
0: decades ago. Well, on the specific specific issue of gay rights, the Supreme Court's about to take another whack <laughs> at uh, at that issue, and that involves that clerk from Kentucky who doesn't want to have but, to marry gay couples.
3: But she didn't want to back in the past, and yeah, that was a very contentious issue. Yeah, but now Our that's going to
0: be before the court.
3: I know, and and remember, if you'll recall from the uh, the Dobbs decision, if you look at what Clarence Thomas had to say there, Um, he was pretty clear that he didn't think this was the end of a process. He thought it was the beginning of a process of undoing court precedents from the past on a host of issues. And so now we've got a situation where the U.S. Supreme Court is controlled by an activist, judicial activist majority, seeking to undo um, the rule of law. And you've got a, a former lawyer, well, a lawyer who has now become Speaker of the House, who's been very much, you know, kind of, tied into and central to that agenda, um, it's a big deal. And, and this, is, this is a very important component of the, the Johnson story, the Mike Johnson story. This is one of the things about politics, right? It's very rare that things turn out well when someone nobody has heard of is put into a position of great power, right, or nobody has thought of in that position, doesn't always happen. Sometimes an outsider will ride in and turn out to be quite good. But um, by and large, when you get someone who you haven't heard of moving into a top position in Congress or top position in anything, it's usually someone who has been um, supported, trained up, encouraged by those who have already kind of burned their own bridges, right, those who are already in trouble, um, and they want a fresh face. Who can carry their agenda, do exactly what they want done, but uh, can sort of present himself as you know mild mannered, easygoing, likable, loves everybody kind of person.
0: Although I think that's a, you know, I, ironically of all the Republican speakers in the modern era, the one that lasted the longest is the one they plucked out of nowhere, and that was Dennis Haster. Except, uh, but, for, yeah, except that but he. he I remember was, how well that turned out. Well, a, uh, all right. Look, uh, the personal issues, but. He didn't really have a particularly strong agenda. In some respects, he was sort of a, a figurehead, and it was Tom DeLay running things.
3: And that's exactly my point,
0: right, that, that
3: Tom DeLay couldn't be Speaker of the House. He was unacceptable. So they found Danny Hastert. Similarly, my, or Jim Jordan can't be Speaker of the House. He's considered unacceptable. So they find uh, Mike Johnson. The interesting thing about it, though, is that you say, you know, you could say, well, Hastert wasn't so bad or whatever, you know, relatively mild-mannered in some ways, except that he did the Hastert rule, remember? And the Hastert rule, which was obviously the delay rule, that's the thing that locked in the Republican caucus as, a, as an entity that would not compromise with or work with Democrats, right? They couldn't pass major legislation if they didn't have all the Republicans on board. And so if you want to see the point at which Congress became dramatically more rigid, it was in that moment. And my suspicion is that that that's what you're going to see with Johnson. Johnson is going to put on a very, very mild-mannered face in all this. He's going to look okay on TV. He's going to present himself pretty well. But I think you're going to see a much more rigid House of Representatives than what you saw under uh, even Kevin McCarthy. And so this is, this is getting to be a very tough situation, and I will bet you the one person who has this all figured out uh, for good and for bad and is probably a little bit concerned is Mitch McConnell, because Mitch McConnell has always relied on, he, he's, he's, as bad as he is, he's always relied on uh, a measure of, of compromise and sort of bipartisanship to get major things done. Um, and, and he's looked for partnership in the House. That's what they did on the, on the budget issues recently. Um, and he had McCarthy, who would work with him on that. I have real doubts of whether Johnson's going to do that. I think Johnson's going to be a much more uh, rigid player. Um, and because of that, the very right-wing people in the House will give him space. He may appear to compromise at times, but I'm going to bet you when you get to the critical tests and the things where it really matters like even perhaps certifying an election down the line, that's where Johnson's going to become a very dangerous player.
0: John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation with us at sliceoffice.com. We've got more. When you're looking for a new computer or need help with one you already own, call 231-8000 and Madison Computer Works will get things up and running for you. Madison Computer Works, computers that work for you. We're back at sliceoffice.com. Brought to you by Madison Computer Works and also Jeff's Guitar Clinic. Joining us now, John Nichols from the Capital Times and The Nation. Uh, John, we've got so many different things going on, but I, I definitely want to highlight what happened, because this is a podcast that focuses on a lot of labor issues, uh, with what happened with Ford and the UAW. Here, uh, here's this from NBC. Johnson. Good news on the U.S. economy. It grew by an annual rate of nearly 5% in the third quarter, beating expectations. And as Maggie Vesper reports, there is major progress in something that's been a drag on the economy, the weeks-long auto worker strike.
1: Tonight, for Ford workers, cleanup along the picket lines.
2: It was a bit of a shock. You know, I, I didn't expect Ford to come to the table with a deal so soon.
1: Six weeks into their sweeping strike against America's big three car companies, United Auto Workers last night we announcing their tentative first agreement tentative before. agreement.
2: Our stand-up strike has delivered.
1: UAW leaders say the Ford deal, which still needs to be approved by members, would guarantee a 25% increase in base pay, reinstate cost of living allowances, and get rid of, quote, divisive wage tiers. Ford saying they're pleased with the deal.
0: The wage increases, the cost of living
1: allowance uh, is huge. But other members aren't so sure.
0: What we were shooting for was at least 30 to 35%, 25%. I don't know.
1: Meanwhile, strikes at Stellantis and GM plants grew this week, GM saying the stoppage has already cost them $800 million in pre-tax earnings. In the wake of Ford's breakthrough, both companies confirm talks continue.
0: I wouldn't be surprised
3: that eventually, GM and Stellantis ultimately agree to contracts with a similar type of pay raise for their workers.
1: Tonight, President Biden, who made history joining the picket line last month, calling the Ford deal a testament to the power of employers and employees coming together. Ford saying they want to get their close to 20,000 workers back on the job soon. UAW leadership saying no date for the ratification vote has been set. Lester.
0: Maggie Vespa. The issue. All right. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's kind of a big deal. Um,
3: Sean Payne, uh, the newly elected leader of the UAW, has transformed the UAW. Uh, It is a different union than what it was. And one of the things he's done is recognize that the membership of the union was frustrated. They didn't see effective leadership. And so he set out to make demands that seemed over the top to an awfully lot of uh, people outside of, of the union and outside of, of the labor movement. But what Spain recognized is that the movement actually needed to fight for something, and he fought hard for very big things. Now, did he get everything that did they get everything they were fighting for? No, you never do in a, in a negotiation. But here's the one thing that I would I would kind of point people to as a as a reference point here: the amount of wage increase that the workers will get under this contract, the sport contract, if it's accepted, is greater than their combined wage increases over the last 22 years.
0: Pretty remarkable. (laughs) Think about it. I mean, you take all your
3: contracts, decade after decade, put them together, everything you got in one contract under this new leadership, they get more. And they get a restructuring of the tiers for work they get. Cost of living increases back. They get major improvements for retirees, and they get genuine progress in finding the industry going forward. This is not a perfect contract. Sure, people will find things that, that they're not satisfied with, but this is one of—I mean, I would say this is the most revolutionary contract contracts won by a labor union um,
0: since the 1930s. So. Explain the tier system, because I sure. think there's a lot of confusion about that. Yeah, look, um,
3: companies always want this, right? Uh, companies are willing to say, well, we've got our established employees, the people we hired 20 years ago or 15 years ago. They're locked in. They came in under a certain system. We're not going to change the rules for them, right? They're going to get a certain level of get a certain level of pay. They're going to get certain guarantees as regards pensions. But for new hires... We want a different set of rules, right? And for them, they won't get as much pay. They won't get the same benefits. They won't get the same pension. Maybe they won't even get a pension. And so that's how the tier system works, right? It's when you were hired, whether you are treated the same as workers who were hired before you for doing the exact same work. It's a very divisive thing. It divides senior workers over junior workers. It, it, you know, Ultimately, over time, it weakens the union. It undermines the, the circumstance of workers. And so this is something that smart unions have always been opposed to. It's, tier systems are forced on them usually in very difficult times. That's what happened with the UAW. They made it very important to overdo it or undo it. And I'll tell you something, slide. This is a courageous thing because when you go after the tier system, you are saying to the older workers, we are going to have to, perhaps make some sacrifices in in order to bring the younger workers up so that we can be a united unit, so that we can all be, you know, treated reasonably fairly. And um, Fain did that with a very smart strategy because he did fight to eliminate the tier system, but he also fought to dramatically
0: improve
3: the condition of all the workers, including those senior workers. And so it's very, very good internal. And
0: this has to do with the fine pensions as well?
3: Absolutely right. It's whether you get into the pension system, um, and and they're still going to be fighting on on some of this stuff. Uh, this this contract, as best I can read it, and we haven't seen all the details. It it's probably not going to be perfect, right? It isn't going to do everything that that you you would want to see. There are still going to be. They've got a big problem uh, in the auto companies with temp, so-called temporary workers, and these are workers who sometimes will work for a company for a decade, right? But they're they're still referred to as a temporary worker. And, um, and there's, there's going to be, I think, ongoing struggle with some of that. But here's one of the interesting things fly. I don't know. Did you see what the pay increase for so-called
0: temporary workers is going to be? Tell me. It's like 80%. Well, it was, <laughs> they were being paid a shockingly low amount of money.
3: Okay. They, paid, paid, you know, they're Garbage. being paid a ridiculous bad wages and, and, I still think there's a a need ultimately to deal with this temp worker issue in a much more profound way even than probably this contract will. But what they are going to do with this contract is raise the pay rate rate of temporary workers, you know, the 80 to 100% wage rate. They're going to just get a tremendous amount more money. As somebody who's negotiated labor union, I was on the negotiating committee for the Newspaper Guild in the day, and, and I can tell you, when you, when you guarantee that your lowest paid workers and your most vulnerable workers are paid well, the impact on the company is profound because then the company starts to say, okay, and why aren't we making them employees? If we've got to pay them well, right, why are we doing this temporary thing or this tiered thing? And so that's really what Bain is working on. He's working on a situation where ultimately the companies are going to be paying these workers so well, and accepting, giving them benefits and things like that, that I think that you're going to start to see a kind of a a uniting of the workforce into everybody being under, you know, a fair employment, a fair fair set of rules. That is radically transformative, not just in the auto industry, but in American uh, industry in general at this point. It really undoes a lot of the damage of the last 40 years.
0: Let's uh, take a look at how this might have an interesting short-term effect. Some of the big Ford plants and some of the future that Ford has, you know, bet on as far as battery battery manufacturing, is in Kentucky, in Louisville. Yep. These are union plants. Uh, there's an election there in two weeks. Uh, I would I would happen to think, and Bashir already uh, uh, Andy Bashir has a feather in his cap for getting Ford to expand. Uh, their yeah. Kentucky operation, but I have to think this is good news for Governor Bashir.
3: I think it's very good news for Governor Beshear. Um, for those who haven't been watching the gubernatorial race in Kentucky, it's not really like Bashir needs a lot more good news. Um, he appears to be doing extremely well, which is quite remarkable, and I, I think it's a testament to him as, a, as an effective governor. And by the way, not a particularly conservative governor. He's not a big lefty or something like that, but he's He's governed as a, you know, pretty much a mainstream Democrat in a state that voted pretty strongly for Trump. And so he's proven to be very effective and very popular. But you're right, slide. This is a critical deal, and, and it's critical on a couple of levels. Um, one, a lot of the growth in the auto industry has been in southern and border states like Kentucky. Um, and so making sure that those uh, new plants are under union contracts, very big deal. Also, um, this build-out of the battery production and of, of things related to electric vehicles, that has got to be union, right? It's got to be protected by uh, union contracts. And that's one of the big achievements that Bain and the UAW have, have gotten here is that they have gotten a lot of, of progress in that regard. By the way, I would emphasize one thing. Don't see the UAW contract as the, the end of anything. The best way to see this UAW contract is as a pivot. This is a very successful negotiation. Not perfect, but very successful. If the UAW were to rest on this and say, okay, well, we're just going to relax for the next four years, it would be disastrous. So much is changing in the industry. What Fain has suggested, and I think what he'll do, is to take this as a baseline and then begin a significant level of organizing, expanded organizing, uh, in these new plants in places like Kentucky and southern states. So... I think UAW has moved forward, uh, not not resting on its laurels
0: here. I have a minute or so left. At the beginning of that report from Lester Holt from NBC, yep. he talked about the surprise numbers on the economy, gross domestic product, five mm-hmm. percent. How long have we been hearing that there was going to be a recession?
3: <laughs> right. See, and there is a recession around, but you know, many places in the world are suffering recession. Right, and and so. And Joe Biden, his poll numbers are not good. We should acknowledge that, that, you know, there's a lot of people that are dissatisfied and stuff like that. But if you actually look at the numbers, if you actually look at what he's done, Biden kind of stands out internationally, not just, you know, in the context of the U.S., but internationally as the, the leader who appears to have figured out how to avert a recession. Um, and that's, that's absolutely remarkable. Now he's got to do things to make people actually recognize, you know, what has been accomplished and, frankly, to, to ad- address inequities that still exist. But, boy, um, it's not a bad argument to run for re-election
0: on. Well, I would love to look at the metrics of the country of where it was in 1984 versus 2024, uh, that Very Ronald good. Reagan successfully ran for re-election. Now, he had a different—he uh, he didn't walk the picket line. He busted unions. Uh, that was a little different technique. Uh, and of course, he yeah, set he set in up. motion he set in motion a very troubled economy. But for the short term, we were on a sugar buzz in 1984. Uh, but I think, as far as inflation goes, I don't I don't think inflation was much lower in 1984 oh, yeah. than it is now. Well,
3: remember one of the problems in the, in the late seventies, early eighties, was where we had massive inflation, right? I mean, it was it became it was tempered somewhat by '84, as it was tempered, by the way. Somewhat in um, is now. Well, you
0: yeah, remember inflation was bad yeah. before Jimmy Carter became president.
3: It, it, was one of, well, it was also one of the things that, that beat Jimmy Carter in 80. Um, and probably helped
0: beat Gerald Ford in uh, 1976. Except
3: let me make this one quick point. I know we've only got a second here, so let me make this point um, Reagan reelected overwhelmingly as the economy surged in 84, uh, Clinton reelected uh, pretty comfortably as the economy improved significantly in 96. And if you even go back to 76 with Gerald Ford, Gerald Ford was in terrible shape. His polling number was awful. And yet, at the end of the day, he almost beat Jimmy Carter that year because the economy was starting to surge. What you have to understand is if your economy is surging, if it's doing well, if it's rising, the sitting president, Republican or Democrat, gets a tremendous benefit.
0: John Nichols from the Capital Times and the Nation. Thanks for coming to Sly'sOffice.com. Pleasure to be with you, brother. Sly'sOffice.com. Thanks a million. Bye bye.